0: Hello, everyone. Happy New Year, and welcome to Barron's Live. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. A quick programming note before we get into today's episode with our guest host, Lauren Foster. Barron's Live started in the early days of the COVID pandemic to help you stay up to date on important investment news. Starting today, Barron's Live will become a weekly show hosted by me and my colleague Ben Levison. Please join us every Monday at noon and on Tuesdays when Monday is a national holiday to get our take on stocks to watch, the market outlook, the tech sector, and more, plus takeaways from our Barron's Roundtable conversations. We'll also feature guest speakers and answer listener questions. We're looking forward to what 2024 has in store. Now, on to today's episode.
1: Welcome to our first call of the new year, which we're calling Fearless Forecast for 2024. I'm Lauren Foster, a senior writer at Barons, and I'm delighted to have Dr. Ed Yardeni, president of Yardeni Research, in the guest chair today. Many of us at Barons have followed Dr. Ed's work for years. He and his team put together a daily briefing on markets and economics along with Quick Takes, which are shorter pieces on the market moving developments. You can find those at yardeniquicktakes.com. Welcome, Dr. Ed. Thank you for taking the time to join me today.
2: Thank you very much, Lauren.
1: So when Lauren Rubin had you on the show last January, she said she'd found the most optimistic person in America. When (laughs) Lauren was talking about a hard landing, you were writing about the soft landing scenario. And you also forecast that the S&P 500 would end the year at 4,800, a prediction that turned out to be uncannily accurate. The S&P closed at 4,770. So we had this huge move up last year and then a bit of a pullback last week. Are you still feeling optimistic? What's in store for the next six months to 12 months?
2: Yes, I'm still optimistic about uh, the next 12 months and uh, beyond. I have... been kind of uh, arguing that this could turn out to be the uh, roaring 2020s, which kind of rhymes with uh, what happened in the 1920s, Uh, just a labor shortage uh, currently that I think will be dealt with with uh, tremendous technology spending to boost productivity. And so I think that will be uh, the key variable driving the economy and inflation over the next uh, over the rest of the decade. So with regards to the the near term, I'm expecting that the market uh, will continue to rally. I think the bull market uh, has been intact since uh, October of uh, last year, and I'm looking for 5,400 by the end of this year and 6,000 by the end of uh, 2025.
1: Well, you're certainly bullish. Let's talk a little bit about the near term. Uh, Do you think it's going to be a bit of a sort of a sloppy market for the first half of the year and then the momentum will pick up in the second half? Or what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, yes, I I think at the beginning of last year, um, a lot of uh, Wall Street strategists and economists were thinking that uh, they were still in the recession uh, mode, thinking that the economy would uh, weaken in the uh, first half of the year and that uh, the stock market would uh, decline on that. Uh, and then that the market would start to recover in the second half of uh, last year and the notion that the economy was going to do better in 2024. I'm I'm not thinking that uh, maybe the first half is going to be the sloppy half uh, this year and that uh, we will see uh, a good finish in the second half of the year uh, with a summer rally uh, going right into uh, another one of these uh, early Santa Claus rallies, like the one We had last year.
1: The so-called everything rally. So you're firmly in the bullish camp. i was looking over your notes. You put out one at the end of last year on a dozen reasons to remain bullish in 2024. And among those reasons, I'm just going to call out a few, but I'd love for you to sort of talk through a few of them. Interest rates, uh, consumers have purchasing power, uh, demand for labor is strong. Just walk us through a few of the other reasons why you're you're so bullish.
2: Well, I think the key really... Uh, always in the past and now, is, is inflation, because inflation really is what drives Fed policy. Uh, remember, from uh, 2008 until uh, the, the pandemic, uh, and beyond the pen- pandemic, uh, until inflation actually came back, uh, the, the Fed was uh, obsessed about raising inflation back up to 2%. Uh, I mean, those are the, the days of nostalgia. And uh, the, the as a result, interest rates were kept near zero. We had quantitative easing and and so forth. Uh, Then uh, inflation, uh, because of the pandemic largely, uh, came back. I viewed it as uh, largely transitory. I got a little wobbly there with everybody else thinking that it might be more persistent. Uh, But I looked at the history of inflation, and it tends to be very uh, spiky. In other words, the faster it goes up, the faster it comes down. Uh, Others were thinking it could be the 1970s all over again. I was conceding it could be that, but I thought it could turn out to be a rather transitory inflation problem, and that the roaring 2020 scenario would prevail, as as I think it's it's doing now. But inflation really is the key, and uh, I think uh, we're finding that inflation has come down for all sorts of reasons, but uh, but not the one that um, most uh, forecasters uh, were anticipating. That was that the Fed would have to raise interest rates to level to levels that would cause a recession to bring inflation down. As it turns out, we didn't have to have the recession here. China has had the recession for us. They've had this uh, big bursting of their property bubble. I think their property bubble is bigger than anything we saw in Japan or even the U.S. in 2007, 2008. And because of their recession, uh, their prices have been deflating. And of course, they export a lot of goods. But goods inflation made a complete round trip in the past couple of years, and it's back down to... uh, negative territory for durable goods. Uh, We're seeing oil prices falling because China is is weak. Uh, Europe is also in a shallow recession. So you put that all together and uh, inflation has come down without a recession in the U.S. and that's very bullish for the stock market because uh, we had a very short, minor recession in earnings. Now earnings are coming back and I think they'll continue to come back. As a matter of fact, in the third quarter, uh, S&P 500 earnings rose to a record high. So I want to come
1: back to the re- recession, which I'll do in a moment. But the twelfth reason on your list was uh, the Roaring Twenties will broaden the bull market, and yeah. for most of last year we saw a pretty narrow market with you know the, the so-called Magnificent Seven, yeah. uh, you know, dominating. So you see a, a much broader breadth this year.
2: Yeah, I think we started to see it uh, really uh, s- since uh, the market's been rallying from its correction. We had a correction from July thirty-first of last year through October. 27th, and wouldn't you know, it, is, it was really exactly a 10% uh, d- decline, just kind of barely made it into the record books as a, a correction. And ever since then, uh, the rally has really broadened out. And I think the, the reason that the market was so narrowly focused on the, what I call the mega cap eight, I, I watch a lot of uh, Netflix uh, movies, so I, I don't want to leave uh, leave uh, Netflix out of the, uh, the, the discussion. But when you look at my mega cap eight stocks... Uh, they uh, they did dominate the the markets for really since the pandemic, uh, and that was largely because there was all these, you know people have been fretting about a recession, uh, for quite some time, uh, and as a result they tended to to invest in just the companies they felt were had the most solid balance sheets, uh, the 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 biggest uh, the most impressive cash flow, and they kind of stayed out of everything else. So s- small cap and mid cap stocks, so called smid cap, stocks got to be very very cheap uh, multiples of 12 to 13, and just uh, since October 27th, they've had a nice rally uh, with double-digit gains, some of them with multiples now of uh, 14.
1: So let's just spend a m- minute on you know, people fretting about the recession. We had you know, Friday's economic indicators, and your quick take that day said so there was plenty for both the hard and yeah. soft landers sure. to support their outlooks in Friday's economic indicators. So what was your take?
2: Well, um, you know I, I think economists do have a tendency to uh, t- take out you know when indicators come out, you t- you take out whatever doesn't support your story and say, here, see it, uh, here's the numbers that support my story. <laughs> so I think a lot of a lot of economists did that with the Friday numbers. Some saw strength and others saw weakness. In addition, on Friday, we had the purchasing managers uh, index for December for uh, non-manufacturing for services, and it was uh, much weaker than expected with a plunge in its employment index which made no sense because if employment plunged according to the survey then why was it up 140,000 in the actual payroll data that came out on Friday so Friday's data was a mess it was you know you could you know point in every direction in terms of where the economy is going uh, but when i looked at it i thought that it was fundamentally uh, solid uh, 140,000 in uh, in services uh, people were kind of put off that 50,000 of the job gains were in government, but their jobs, they count. People, uh, people got employed and, uh, they, they have uh, income. So that, that does, uh, does count. Um, and meanwhile, wages, uh, rose, uh, more than expected 0.4% and 0.3%. It's amazing how much, uh, markets could move on, uh, a couple of, uh, digits, but, uh, I, I looked at that number. Some people said, "Well, that proves that inflation's kind of stuck, and that the Fed's going to have to remain restrictive for a while." And I'm arguing, "No, not necessarily. Wages are rising faster than prices. Uh, real wages are increasing. That's what's going to drive consumer spending, and uh, that can only really happen sustainably if productivity is making a comeback. And we had very s- solid gains in productivity in the second and third quarters. That could continue into the fourth quarter, and maybe uh, long enough that people start to concede that." There really is something going on with productivity, and it's all good.
1: So quick reminder to the audience, if you have questions for Dr. Ed, please submit them in the Q&A feature. I'll be sure to leave some time at the end for the audience Q&A. Now, Dr. Ed isn't a stock picker, but he is happy to talk about broadly uh, the markets and the economy. So let's just go back to your, your your dozen reasons. Last week, you put out a note, uh, I guess, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, which was a dozen reasons to be bearish not in 2024. And you led off with, with sort of history. What does history suggest about 2024, given the 20% gain last year, plus 20% gain?
2: Well, I, I think that uh, a lot of the bearishness has been uh, really focused on the fact that the Fed has uh, increased interest rates in a very short period of time by the most since uh, Paul Volcker did so in the late 1970s. And look at all the terrible things that happened back then in terms of a terrible recession and inflation still didn't moderate, so we had stagflation. Uh, I think when you look back at history, what you see is that a lot of uh, our recessions were actually caused, in fact, by the Fed raising interest rates, uh, which then led to a financial crisis And the yield curve inverted along the way as bond investors started to think, you know, if the Fed keeps being this aggressive in raising rates, something could very well break in the financial system. And so they started buying bonds, even though short-term rates were still going up, figuring that something along the way is going to break. And sure enough, we did have financial crises in the past that then became credit crunches, economy-wide credit crunches. And so it was the credit crunches that caused recessions. This time around, the Fed raised interest rates aggressively. The yield curve uh, inverted. We actually got a financial crisis in March of last year. Three banks went under, and there was a lot of concerns that that was the beginning of a run on the banks. But the Fed came in so quickly with the liquidity facility that the Fed actually stabilized the the, the situation and that it did not, the financial crisis uh, calmed down, did not morph into a credit crunch, and so we haven't had a recession. And so that gave... Uh, the economy time to work its magic to continue to grow and yet to see that inflation continues to moderate so history uh, you know uh, doesn't repeat itself it does rhyme and there's some similarities between what's just happened and what's happened in the past but it's uh, it's the difference that uh, that's the key here and so i've been arguing that the pessimists who've been focusing on inverted yield curves have always led to recessions the leading indicators uh, declining as they have been have always led to recessions I've been pointing out since um, early 2022 that we're in fact, we are in a recession. It just happens to be a rolling recession hitting different industries at different times. And that uh, I've said, we are in a goods recession. People went on a buying binge after the pandemic, and then they stopped buying and started traveling. And um, that's affected some of the goods sensitive uh, indicators, like the um, leading indicators.
1: So let's take off the the rose-tinted spectacles for a moment and talk about what could upset your rather rosy outlook and what could go wrong. There's lots of risk out there. We have conflicts in the Middle East. We have political paralysis in the U.S., uh, not to mention uh, elections in November. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective, what could go wrong? What keeps you up at night?
2: Well, I I, I think uh, a lot of what you mentioned really has to do with politics, domestic politics. and and geopolitics. I mean, the geopolitical developments in the Middle East are unnerving, unsettling, to to say the least. Uh, The uh, ongoing uh, war uh, between Russia and Ukraine is certainly uh, unsettling. But I think, uh, and and of course, uh, over in China, the Chinese uh, leadership continues to uh, to, to uh, say that they uh, intend to be to have Taiwan uh, reunite with the mainland, uh, so those are very unsettling developments. I mean, clearly, if uh, China invaded Taiwan, that would uh, dramatically upset global economic activity. There would be sanctions placed by the West on China. A lot of the semiconductors uh, supply would be disrupted. It, it could could be much worse than even the uh, supply chain disruptions that we saw when uh, the pandemic hit and when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. The Middle East uh, situation is a certain uh, element of deja vu all over again. Uh, The 1970s uh, isn't out of the question as a possible uh, scenario still for the decade. It it may not be the roaring 20s. It could be the the, the great inflation of the 1970s. I don't think so, but uh, I'm I'm not dismissing that possibility and I'm monitoring it, because if we have another regional war that disrupts uh, oil uh, f- exports out of the Middle East, uh, we'd have a big spike in oil prices, uh, and that would be very reminiscent of what happened in the 1970s when we had two uh, geopolitical-related uh, Middle East uh, shocks that uh, led to oil prices going uh, going higher. Meanwhile, uh, even since October 7th, when uh, Hamas brutally attacked uh, Israel, the price of oil actually peaked on September 27th and it's been falling ever ever since uh, through, through the latest uh, uh, data on, on my screen anyways. And that's uh, very, uh, very important because oil has a tremendous impact on the rest of inflation and it's been moderating uh, significantly since September 27th, October, November, December. And now here we are in January. It looks like it's going to continue to be a source of moderation for, for inflation so I, I worry about it, but the price of oil is telling me not, not to worry right now.
1: We had a number of questions come in, actually, that were related to commodities. So maybe this is a good time to ask you, sort of broadly speaking, what your outlook is on sort of oil and other commodities.
2: Well, I keep things pretty simple, maybe because I'm not that smart, and uh, simple sometimes work, uh, works, instead of getting things all complicated. Uh, China's in a recession. Uh, China's in a severe, severe recession. Their property... Uh, Market, the construction and sales and all that, accounted for 20% of uh, Chinese economic growth when uh, when it was a positive contributor. Uh, now it's uh, a very significant neg- negative uh, contributor. Uh, China's uh, demography is terrible. I've uh, often described China as the world's largest, <laughs> largest nursing home. Um, it's it's a, it's uh, an economy that's in trouble, in my opinion. Now some of that might be offset by. Uh, Better growth in India; their stock market is uh, is booming, whereas the Chinese market's been basically flat since 2008. Um, And um, so that leads me to conclude that uh, that's those are negative developments. That the Chinese situation is a negative development uh, for oil and copper, for example, and it's one of the reasons the price of oil uh, continues to fall. Also, uh, you know, OPEC is having tough time uh, keeping its act together. Uh, Angola recently dropped out of OPEC. Uh, some, some countries just uh, concluded that they just want to produce oil and sell it at whatever the markets will bring, and they don't want to be uh, constrained by the cartel in dealing with this uh, situation. Meanwhile, oil production in the U.S., even with everything Biden said about fossil fuels, oil production in the U.S., uh, uh, the oil fuel production is at an all-time record high of 13.3 million barrels per day. On the copper side, you would think that the price of copper uh, would have re- really taken off on uh, the perceptions that the Fed's done tightening, that it's going to be easing. We've seen uh, interest rates uh, coming down in the bond market. And yet the price of copper, while it edged up a little bit, it really hasn't moved much at all, uh, suggesting that even though housing activity may get a nice boost from uh, f- falling mortgage rates here in the United States, uh, that's not enough to uh, offset the weakness in China's demand for copper. So we've seen Some some weakness there. I can't tell you much about agricultural commodities uh, other than, uh, you know, when they go up, they 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 often come down quite sharply. It's the old adage about uh, the best cure for high commodity prices is high commodity prices. And that seems to continue to work like a charm.
1: So there's an awful lot of um, money just sitting on the sidelines. I was looking at some data from ICI last week, and I read that there's $2.3 trillion sitting in retail money market funds. So if we're going to look at sort of the year ahead of us, do you think investors should be moving out of cash into bonds, out of cash into stocks, into both? What, what do you yeah. think?
2: Well, you know, uh, somebody as uh, knowledgeable and uh, important as Jamie Dimond during May of 2022, uh, was warning that uh, while consumers were in good shape back then, that they'd run out of the excess savings that they'd accumulated during the pan- pandemic, uh, and that when they run out of those excess savings, they'd have to to retrench. And other pessimists on the consumer have been saying, look, at uh, there's a, a trillion dollars of uh, cons- consumer debt out there. Uh, but what's uh, remarkable is when you actually look at the liquidity figures, like you just mentioned, uh, there's still a tremendous amount of liquidity in the system. And not only that, but household wealth is at an all-time record high of $155 trillion. I think that's about the right number. Uh, what's fascinating to me is about half of that is being held by the baby boomers, which kind of makes sense. Uh, I've long argued that while there's certainly grounds for worrying about income and wealth inequality in the country, a lot of it has to do with demographics, with aging. You know, The longer you live, the the greater are the odds that, uh, you know, if you've been saving something, it's been compounding at a decent rate and uh, you're you're going to be a lot wealthier the older, older you get. It's kind of like what Spock said in the Star Trek, uh, live long and prosper. And so the baby boomers are sitting just in a huge chunk, $77 trillion in uh, net worth. That's baby boomer households. Uh, and uh, a lot of them are retiring. And uh, they're concluding that, uh, why, why did we stash all this money away Well, it's for retirement. It's to go traveling. It's to go to restaurants and to go see doctors uh, more often uh, just to make sure we can keep doing that. So, yeah, I think that um, the the risk increasingly for those sitting in money market instruments is that those yields are going to be coming down. And uh, meanwhile, the stock market and the bond market uh, have had good rallies, very good rallies, anticipating that very scenario. So it does suggest that there could be some... uh, almost a melt-up situation at some point. I'm not, I mean, you know, we could be in a melt-up right now if the tech stocks just keep, uh, you know, roaring here. NVIDIA just announced that they've got an AI chip that you can ha- have in your own PC at, at home. So, you know, we we could sit at home and create robots and all kinds of o- other fine things, fun things. Uh, but um, as I said, I'm fundamentally bullish on the market. I think it's overdue for a correction and, and stalling out maybe for the next couple of months, but I could be wrong on that. And, I stick with my view that, uh, like Warren Buffett and uh, P- Professor Siegel, um, that uh, stocks really should be held for the long run. Uh, long run, and you should try to compound your dividends.
1: So let's do a quick lightning round, sort of year-end forecasts, before we go to audience questions, uh, of which there are many. So first one: the 10-year Treasury yield.
2: I think the range this year is going to be three and a quarter percent to four and a quarter percent. Um, if I'm wrong on that, it'd probably be lower than that because i I don't think I'll, i i i don't think it's going to be because of a recession that I might be wrong. It might be that inflation's lower. um I, I wouldn't discount the possibility of deflation. We certainly have that in goods and a lot of that's coming out of China, and uh, we may uh we've seen a lot of uh, buildings of uh, multifamily uh, rental apartments and that could start bringing rent inflation down a lot faster
1: how many fed cuts in 2024 and starting when?
2: Uh, 3 and starting at mid year two, 2 to 3 and starting at mid year i'm i'm not I, I don't agree with the market's call that uh, we're going to have four to five and starting in march
1: which sectors are you overweight?
2: i would uh, continue to overweight technology it's not cheap but uh, you could broaden out to some of the midcap stocks the smaller uh, uh, smaller midcap stocks and in, in technology, uh, I've got this uh, pet theory that uh, you have to look at all companies as all companies as pretend, potentially technology companies. Either they make it or they're using it. Uh, a lot of the financial companies are using technology, fintech, uh, to uh, become more efficient to reduce their costs. So I think financials still make a lot of sense. They've had a, a good rebound here from the uh, banking crisis of last year, but I think they still have uh, upside. Industrial should continue to get a lot of benefit from the government's uh, infrastructure spending and stimulus, stimul- uh, stimulative uh, incentives for onshoring of uh, production. So those would be kind of the three that I'd be be focusing on.
1: Okay. Then on the flip side, what would you be underweighting?
2: Well, um, I, I would think uh, you know um, the the utilities, the consumer staples, the more defensive. Stocks, I, I think, will uh, will be under underperformers. Doesn't mean I think they're gonna you're going to lose money in them. And if you want to kind of stay safe, but they're you know, they're they're the consumer staples aren't exactly cheap either.
1: So we've had lots of audience questions come in, and I'm going to turn to those and and sort of bundle quite a few together. Um, many people are asking about um, AI and tech and the Magnificent Seven. So broadly yeah. speaking, whether the AI driven rally in tech is sustainable and whether the, the Magnificent Seven, or in your case, I think you said the Magnificent Nine, yeah. whether they still are magnificent.
2: Well, look, uh, the AI um, story really took off uh, starting November of uh, of last, last year. We had uh, a, a lot of uh, excitement about that. October of uh, last year's... Uh, um, I, I think I got that wrong. I think it's... Uh, you know, the, the bear market started in uh, 2022 and ended in 2022. And, uh, you know, then we started getting some real excitement about uh, AI that really helped uh, Microsoft and NVIDIA and, and those kind of stocks. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that in many ways is the the beginning of the roaring uh, 2020s, uh, my, my roaring 2020 scenarios, all about technology being used to increase productivity, and AI certainly has that potential, but it's not just AI, it's robotics, it's automation, it's uh, the whole range of technologies that companies can use, and again, you don't necessarily have to buy the uh, the, 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 the companies that uh, make the technologies, you can also buy the companies that, does, as you do your research, or others do the research for you, uh, have concluded that they, they really are using technology to uh, improve their productivity.
1: Question from Charles. He says, uh, Dr. Yardeni, what are your thoughts on the great transfer of wealth from the baby boomers? Has it happened? Is it happening now? Or will it happen in the future?
2: I think uh, one of the reasons the pessimists have been getting the consumer wrong is because uh, they don't look at what's happening uh, around them and their families, uh, talk to friends. Uh, I, I, I guess, um, you know, I'm a baby boomer, so I have a little bit of insight uh, into into that generation. And uh, what I see is a lot of my friends retiring. Uh, a lot of them had uh, maybe two kids that are now adults, uh, and uh, some of them uh, still have kids that uh, aren't uh, able to, to pay for rent and others and other necessities. So I I see a lot of intergenerational uh, transfers uh, where uh, the uh, the baby boomers are are helping to their, their kids uh, through. Uh, through young adulthood because things are so expensive in terms of uh, rent and, uh, and so on. A lot of young uh, young folks are moving uh, down south where uh, the cost of living is, is lower. So that's uh, that's another way that uh, consumers are uh, kind of living within, within their means. Uh, but I think a lot of the kids of the baby boomers are anticipating that mom and dad are going to be leaving something uh, for them. Um, you know, I talked to some of my friends and said, you know, Kids never uh, cleaned their room. They, were, they played music too loud. I didn't like their friends. We're just going to spend it all. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but the baby boomers have so much, I don't know that they're going to be able to spend it all. And a lot of it is also a precautionary uh, wealth accumulation. You just never know how long you're going to live and how much you're going to need to uh, you know for your health care needs. So there's going to be a lot of money uh, available to the next generation. Maybe that uh, will lead to a lower savings rate. Uh, the young people will figure out that uh, some of that wealth is gonna come their way, and so they they can basically live on what they what they make and because partly because they have to but i I, I just don't have any data on it i think I think I've seen some studies saying that forty percent of uh, homeowners do not do not have a mortgage. I gotta believe a lot of those are the older uh, people the the baby boomers that have paid off their houses. And so they don't have that monthly payment. Uh, and that's a, a great, great relief. Um, I've also read somewhere that uh, also like a large percentage of uh, young adults are still living at home. Uh, so that's, you know, when I when I was growing up and got out of college, the last thing I wanted to do was go back home. And now a lot of kids see that as, uh, you know, sort of a, a necessary uh, e- economic uh, need. Indeed.
1: We had a few questions on the outlook for emerging markets and and one more specific one from Peter who says, do you agree with the shock treatment President Millet is applying to Argentina and do the reforms have the potential to convert Argentina into an economic powerhouse?
2: Well, I I hope so. Um, And, uh, you know, it's a little bit reminiscent of when uh, Milton Friedman uh, gave advice to Chile and, uh, I took some of that advice and it seemed to help for help for a short period of time. Uh, I hope so. Um, I mean, we, we should all live long and prosper, uh, here in the United States and in Argentina and, and everywhere else. And, uh, but, uh, well, I, I just don't know enough about the Argentinian situation, how quickly the, the politics have changed and how quickly they could, could, could change, could change again. But in terms of emerging markets, uh, I've been against investing in China for several years. Uh, no, I mean to be blunt. Uh, China is uh, run by, uh, by by Maoists. Um, Ch- Ch- Chairman Z, President Z, uh, is uh, has been talking globally, uh, glowingly about the, um, the the period when Mao was running running China. He's he's proud of what Mao did, and uh, he's running the country in a very similar fashion, very authoritarian, very centralized, um, and it's coming back to haunt them. Um, it's coming back to haunt them uh, because they did actually let a property bubble get get out of hand and their one child policy uh, is turning out to be a, just a major demo- demographic disaster so I would uh, not in, I would still even though China's looks really cheap, uh, I wouldn't go there I I'd, I'd recommend India but India's ha- has been discovered and it's had a heck of a run uh, so maybe some of the other Asian countries, uh, Think uh, v- Vietnam and uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, but again, I'm really no—I uh, don't really follow these countries very closely. I just look look at uh, broad asset classes. I will say that emerging markets, the MSCI emerging market index, especially in dollars, tends to be very highly correlated with commodities, uh, which leads me to believe that you know you you need to consider that when you're investing in emerging markets. There is, uh, you, you may be overweighting uh, commodities without even knowing it. Um, something to, to think about when you're looking at, at, uh, at your portfolios. If you, are, if you already have some commodities in your portfolio, adding uh, an emerging market uh, portfolio may actually just be doubling up on the, um, the commodity s- stake.
1: I'm going to have a question here for you on real estate, since you mentioned uh, real estate a few minutes ago in terms of China. um, Kirk had two uh, related questions. Uh, The commercial real estate market, particularly offices in bad shape, much smaller than residential. As these buildings are sold and banks take write downs, can the Fed keep things orderly and avoid spillovers with a special facility? And a follow up, it would appear many of those buildings become mixed use with residential or outright residential long term. How much impact will that have on the housing shortage?
2: Well, one of, one of the, uh, you know, the American economy is, is, is huge, it's very diversified, and um, the capital markets are also huge and very diversified. And one of the things that uh, impresses me about our capital markets is Over the years, uh, really since the late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, we've developed a, an industry uh, that focuses on distressed assets. Uh, they attract a lot of money into funds that invest in distressed assets, and uh, they get they're distressed when they're when noth- when everything is going right. Uh, when things go wrong, like they are now in some areas of the commercial market, commercial real estate market, uh, some of them are actually taking hits in that that regard. But they also have a lot of cash to invest in distressed assets, and this is what they're supposed to do with the cash when, when there are opportunities supposed to pounce on them, and then they have enough cash to uh, repurpose uh, these, uh, these facilities. Uh, I, I was intrigued that there was a mall in uh, Texas that went under and it was uh, converted into a uh, pickleball um, facility that's uh, apparently quite, quite successful. Uh, you know, there was no uh, distressed asset funds in the Great Depression. Uh, there was one around during the 1970s. It really started with the Resolution Trust Corporation back in the late 80s, early 90s, when uh, the government uh, came up with this clever way of um, restructuring the assets of saving and loan, uh, the saving and loan industry. And Wall Street looked at it and said, "Hey, this is a pretty, pretty clever uh, d- device, and could be a really good business." And as I said, uh, ever since, we've seen this development of the venture capital fund and the distressed asset funds, and uh, that provides a lot of cushion. It does mean that somebody is taking losses. A lot of the losses, though, I I think are going to be taken at uh, institutional portfolios. So it'll be more a haircut on a rate of return than something that could create a uh, a crisis. Uh, But uh, I am watching the banking situation because uh, the small banks have something like $2 trillion dollars in commercial real estate. But uh, commercial real estate includes a lot of different sorts of properties. And um, odds are that the smaller banks aren't exposed to the uh, old office buildings in urban areas. And uh, their portfolios are still doing relatively well. And now that um, mortgage rates are coming down, that should take some of the pressure off, uh, off that market.
1: George has a question on, on the job data. Yes. He says, how accurate is the unemployment slash employment stats when millions are currently out of the job market and are no longer receiving benefits and have stopped searching and therefore not in the statistics?
2: Yeah, that there, there's a lot of moving parts when it comes to looking at the, the labor market. That's, that's for sure. And uh, again, I go back to uh, declaring <laughs> that Uh, When the numbers support my story, they're good numbers. When they don't, uh, they're not good numbers. Uh, We know that the employment numbers are are prone to revisions, anyways, and they tend to kind of run in streaks. Right now, we're seeing downward revisions, uh, which suggests that uh, whatever the number just came out is, it'll may very well be revised uh, lower. Uh, But uh, I think part of I I think the the issues that are raised by the question are very relevant uh, and valid. Uh, But I think there's other uh, the other side of the story is that we have a shortage of 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 workers. Uh, Maybe some of them have just dropped out of the labor market for one reason or another. But there's the jobs are out there. There's uh, you know there's like what 1.3 job openings for every unemployed person out there. They aren't necessarily in in the uh, in the right places for everybody. So there's some frictional uh, unemployment. But um, I think uh, the problem we have in the labor market, to a large extent, and I'm talking about sort of the macro uh, situation, I'm not talking about individual people that are certainly having problems out there, uh, dealing with even in an economy with a low unemployment rate. But um, I think we have a a shortage of labor, particularly skilled labor. And I think uh, that's that's kind of the the driving force behind my roaring 2020s idea is that we, the, the best way to solve the shortage of the of skilled labor is with the technological innovations.
1: So Patrick wants you to put those rose-tinted spectacles back on again for his okay. question, and he says, "What is one very good thing that is expected in the economy in 2024 that we did not have in 2023?"
2: Well, I think we're going to have lower inflation. Is is, is that in in the context of the question? I I didn't quite get the question. It's like what's what 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 factors are are different?
1: Well, I think it's a pretty open question. Is this one oh, yeah, very good thing that's expected in the economy? Yeah. So I guess you can interpret oh, yeah, I, it as I, you I wish
2: yeah, I think consistent with my previous comments, it's inflation. I think uh, you know we'll we'll see inflation coming uh, down to to two percent. And I think we will see the Fed concluding that uh, while the economy doesn't necessarily need them to lower interest rates because I think the unemployment rate's going to stay under four percent in this labor shortage scenario. I think the Fed uh, will still lower by two or three times uh, just because of the the thesis, the theory that if they don't lower rates, they'll become more restrictive as inflation moderates. So inflation really is uh, you got to get inflation right to get the portfolio right. And if inflation continues to moderate, uh, that'll uh, be very good for bonds and stocks.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about bonds. Uh, Moritz has a question. What is the risk of disruption in the U.S. Treasury market due to low demand and excessive growth in issuance?
2: Right. I'm glad the question was asked because uh, you know, I don't I don't want this thing to, you know, me to come across as just uh, you know, everything is hunky dory and there's no problems out there. Um, I, I think you know we saw in uh, in August, September, October. Uh, a real issue with the supply of s- securities. Uh, the, the bond market kind of gagged on the uh, size of the auctions. and uh, that I think was one of the main reasons that the bond yield went up from four and a quarter percent to five percent dur- during that, that period. Then we got into uh, November uh, November 1st, and uh, you know one of the bears on, on the bond market, Ackman, who had a great call, uh, declared that he was out of the trade. So that started making people think about well, you know, maybe five percent isn't a bad yield. And I did even without that. I think we had a lot of long-only investors saying, you know, I don't care if it goes to six percent. I can't really time it. Five percent is an awfully good yield uh, in, in the face of what looks like an inflation that's continuing to to uh, to moderate. Uh, but the supply issue is still very much there. We still have the compounding of interest uh, on the federal debt. I think we're going to be up over a trillion dollars just in interest payments would be bigger than defense spending probably within the next six to 12 months. Um, I've always said that uh, I, I really am not going to uh, put a lot of weight on supply and demand in the bond market unless until the bond market does so. To me, what drives the bond market is inflation, expected inflation, and how the Fed will respond uh, to all that. And that uh, that seemed to be the the case until we got into that August, October period where suddenly supply and demand Became an issue, and suddenly, just kind of like, oh, it's not the not not a problem anymore. Everybody, uh, did everybody get into five percent? And they're still obviously buying at uh, four, four and a quarter percent. And I think that has to do with uh, a more relaxed attitude towards inflation and a more relaxed attitude with the outlook. The the, the outlook is that the Fed's going to be uh, less hawkish and more, more dovish up up ahead here. But it is still is something that concerns me. We still have fiscal, uh, profligate fiscal policy. And, um, uh, but, uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, we're, we're, the largest economy in the world. I don't think the dollar is going to be t- uh, disappear and be, be taken over by anything that, uh, the autocratic regimes put together as an alternative to the dollar in the, in the global system. Uh, so it's, it's something to worry about. Uh, Ray Dalio has been talking about a debt crisis uh, for, for a while here. And it's, uh, it's it's a plausible concern, but uh, it's not something that's uh, played out here. By the way, when Janet Yellen was uh, head of the Fed, I often refer to her to her in a in a, uh, in a in a happy way of saying that she's the fairy god fairy godmother of the stock market because every time she gave a speech as Fed chair uh, talking about the economy and monetary policy, the stock market went up. Uh, so whatever she said, it was turned to, tended to be bullish. Uh, now maybe uh, we need to consider that she's now the fairy godmother of the bond market because on November 1st uh, she kind of got the message from the bond vigilantes and said, well if you boys and girls don't want to buy uh, notes and bonds I'll cut back on on the supply and uh, over the past 12 months 1.9 trillion dollars of treasury bills have been issued uh, on a net on a net basis uh, and uh, 0. 0.4 trillion. Have been issued for notes and bonds, so the uh, so Janet Yellen's Treasury has been pretty uh, clever in uh, giving the market what, what it wants. You don't want notes and bonds, we'll give you bills. So everybody's now sitting on bills, wondering what what's going to be next if rates come come uh, tumbling down.
1: Well, we've had dozens of questions come in and I'm so sorry to the audience if we haven't gotten to your question, uh, but I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. So Dr. Ed, thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure chatting with you.
2: My pleasure indeed.
1: And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today for, uh, and for also for your great questions. We hope you can join us again next week when Lauren Rublin and Ben Levison will be back in the host chairs with Stocks to Watch. Until next time, thank you for your company. Be well and have a wonderful day.
0: The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.